0: Well, good morning. It is good to see all of you here. We thank you for coming, being part of our services here at Ivy Creek. We are so glad to have you with us today. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, take them out. Turn with me about two-thirds of the way over to the Gospel of Matthew, and the first book in the New Testament, and we are going to look at chapter 4 this morning. And we're going to begin a new sermon series today, a series that I have uh, ...entitled Follow Me. And the reason that I have chosen that title for this series... ...is because depending on what translation that you're reading out of... Um, ...Jesus uses that phrase, follow me, more than 20 times in the Gospels. And some of these occurrences obviously are told by the synoptic Gospels... ...and so they're referring to the same event... ...related to us by different authors... but. To read the words, follow me, coming from the mouth of Jesus that many times, I think means that we need to take those words seriously. And we must understand what Jesus meant when he said and when he commanded folks to follow him. And this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to, to look at a couple of those occurrences that we read in the Gospel of Matthew. Specifically, Matthew's account of is going to tell us about how Jesus called Peter, Andrew, James, and John to become his followers. And then we're also going to read the passage where Matthew tells of his own being called by Jesus to come and follow him. And if I may just go ahead and tip my hand as as we read and study this passage today, what we are going to need to recognize is that the call to, to follow Jesus was not a call that Jesus only issued to the 12 disciples. In fact, the the call that Jesus issues to follow me is is the same call that he issues to all of us. You know, sometimes I think um, that many of us are familiar with the term disciple, but in our familiarity with that term, we kind of just always just toss it off as being those 12 guys that followed Jesus around while he was here on earth and was ministering. But the fact of the matter is, the call to follow Jesus is, is actually a call to every one of us to come and be his disciple. We are called to come and to follow him and to, and, and to follow and pattern our lives after him in such a way that we too will be like those 12. We will be his disciples. And as his disciples, that's the essence of what it means to be a Christian, is to be a disciple of Christ, to be a disciple of, that follows Jesus and that being said, the essence of being a Christian, Jesus gave his disciples one final command before he ascended into heaven. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe what all things that I have commanded you. And so that command that Jesus gives, that the resurrected Lord gives just before he ascends is a command to his followers, to his disciples, to go out and make disciples. And so what I want you to know, kind of up front, I'm just giving you the, the overall goal of this series on the front end, is to, for us to understand the ramifications of what it means to follow me. When Jesus tells us to follow him, what are the ramifications of that? And then I want us to understand what it truly means to follow Jesus. And then I want to encourage those of us who are his followers to obey our Lord's command to go out and call others to follow him as well. And the way that I want us to begin this process today is by us reading about the call of five of those first 12 disciples. So if you found your place there in Matthew chapter 4, Begin reading with me in verse 12. Hear the word of God. Now when Jesus heard that John, that's John the Baptist, had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying... The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat. And their father and followed him. Now, just keep your finger there and maybe just turn over a few pages to Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, one verse. Just want you to hear the similarity. Jesus passed on from there and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you are still calling men, women, boys, and girls to come be your followers, to come and to leave everything and to come and to follow you and to take on the pattern of your life, to view things, to view our world, to view everything that goes about us from, from your lens and and through your lens. And so we pray that today that you would be given the freedom through your Holy Spirit. Working through the power of your word to, to speak to our hearts. Give us open and attentive ears and, and hearts to be able to receive the word of God. As it is sent to us and proclaimed to us this morning from your holy word. And then we pray that we would be found to truly be disciples. That we would be followers of Christ. and That your ways would become more important to us than our ways. And seeing the gospel and the good news taken to others who have not heard, those who may have heard hundreds of times, that they too, we would pray for them and that we would take the good news of the gospel to them. Because, Lord, we truly believe that that is the only way, the only life that they will ever have is through Jesus Christ and through you alone. So we ask this today and we pray for it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Now, in the passage that I began reading for you there in Matthew chapter 4, you'll notice that that Matthew gives us some some geographical markers at the very beginning there to kind of mark out where, where Jesus began his earthly ministry. Matthew tells us that following the 40 days of temptation in the Judean wilderness that begins chapter 4, Jesus went back to the northern part of Israel, back to the land of Galilee. And eventually he came to settle in a land in the town of Capernaum which was a fishing town located right on the Sea of Galilee. And there's much that we could say about the geographical movement of Jesus here, particularly a lot of how the region of Galilee was, was viewed by the rest of the Jews uh, in the land of Israel. Uh, Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah there, and, and he described, Isaiah describes the region as Galilee of the Gentiles. And that in and of itself gives us some indication of how this region was looked at by the rest of the Jews in Israel. It was not looked upon favorably. It was looked upon as a land where where many peoples from all other parts of the world had come in and intermingled with the Jews that were there. But nevertheless, what we learn is that this is where Jesus began his ministry. And what I want to draw your attention to, however, is is the message that Jesus preached. Notice once again what we read in verse 17. Matthew tells us the message that Jesus preached no doubt repeatedly throughout his earthly ministry, was this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, that's an important point for us to consider in light of the flow of Matthew's gospel. And the reason that it's so important, I believe, for us to to really zero in on is because the very next section that I read for you this morning talks about the call of Peter and Andrew and James and John To follow Jesus, and so as a consequence, the very first thing that I want to point out to you this morning, the first point on your outline, is simply this: the call to follow Jesus necessitates repentance. The call to follow Jesus necessitates repentance. Repentance is a subject that, if you've been with us here at Ivy Creek for any length of time, you know it's it's a subject that we tend to keep coming back to again and again in our study of Scripture. To repent, as as one author has put, it means to admit your sin. That's the concept of confession. It it is to express sorrow over your sin. That's the concept of contrition. And it is to turn from your sin. That is the concept of conversion. So repentance involves the the idea of of confession and contrition and conversion. J.C. Ryle has written this. He says, the necessity of repentance is one of the great foundation stones which lie at the very bottom of Christianity. It is a truth which must be pressed on all mankind without exception. And the reason that is the case is because high or low, rich or poor, all have sinned and all are guilty before God. And therefore, all must repent and turn to God if they want to be saved. Raoul goes on to say this. He says, true repentance is no like manner it's no light matter, excuse me. It is a thorough change of heart about sin, a change showing itself in a godly sorrow for sin, in heartfelt confession of sin, in complete breaking off from that sin, and a lasting hatred of all sin. Such repentance is an inseparable companion of saving faith in Jesus Christ. Mark puts it this way in his parallel account of what Matthew wrote here in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. We read that Jesus came to the region of Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And then Mark says, He says this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What we must understand is that repentance and faith go hand in hand. As Kent Hughes has written, if you say that you believe, but there are no substantial changes in your life, you had better consider carefully whether you truly believe. In other words, your faith in Christ will be evidenced by your willingness to follow Christ in obedience. The fact is, it's impossible to follow Christ without repentance. Consider, Consider the fact that Jesus is the sinless, spotless Son of God. He is holy. There is nothing about him that has any sin in it. As a matter of fact, he is God who has never taken one single step in a sinful direction. The scriptures declare to us that he was tempted in every way that you and I have ever been tempted. Yet Jesus was tempted in those ways without ever sinning. And therefore anyone who truly follows Jesus must by definition turn their back on sin, and set their face toward righteousness. That does not mean that Christ's followers never sin. What it does mean, however, is that when we do sin, we are convicted of it, and we confess it, and we turn from it. As one is written, anyone who thinks he or she can follow Christ without renouncing sin is at best badly confused, and at worst not a true Christian. So as Matthew tells us, Jesus went about the region of Galilee calling upon people to repent of their sins. And what we realize is that that is the context. It is the environment into which Jesus issues a call to four fishermen to come and follow Him. The call to follow Christ begins with a contrite heart that confesses sins and turns from those sins. The call to follow Jesus necessitates repentance. But then notice with me the next thing that we learn from our text today, and that is this. The call to follow Jesus requires radical obedience. The call to follow Jesus requires radical obedience. Beginning in verse 18, Matthew moves us down to the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. And that body of water, and I... I told you last week, I was, was just on it three weeks ago. And it's really amazing because, you know, you grow up thinking about the Sea of Galilee and you think about, it's a lake. It's just a lake that's, that's well below sea level. And, and as a result, it, 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 it is called a sea because of all the, a lot of the minerals that's there. But nevertheless, it's still a freshwater lake. But you can, it's about 12 miles long. It's about six miles across at its widest point. And its shoreline is dotted with a lot of little sea villages that... ...that are kind of set up there. And, and Capernaum was one of those. There's, there's plenty of fish in the Sea of Galilee, particularly in the first century. And from my experience there a few weeks ago, there's a lot of tilapia there. That, in fact, that's probably the, the, the number one fish that's in that sea is tilapia. But in the first century, according to the Jewish historian Josephus... ...there was a, an awful lot of other kinds of fish, particularly in the Sea of Galilee... ...that couldn't be found elsewhere... And so as a result, there was a lot of, of, of fishing that was done there and then those fish were taken and they were transported to other towns and to other villages into other countries out of there. As a matter of fact, one of the, one of the settlements right near the, the mouth and the top of the Sea of Galilee is a town called Magdala from which Mary the Magdalene, she was from that town. And, and in recent years, they've uncovered there and they found that one of the main uh, sources of income there was they would, fishermen would bring their fish there where they would be salted. And that salting process would preserve the fish so that they could then be transported to other places and and out from there. That was the kind of fishing that was going on, particularly in and around the Sea of Galilee and in the area of Capernaum. It was a a commercial fishing rather than the kind of the fun relaxation fishing that we might be tempted to to consider. And we know that this was difficult and, and hard work because of what Matthew says. Notice he, he describes Simon Peter and Andrew doing the hard work of repeatedly casting out a heavy net into the sea. Now, the net in and of itself would have been heavy, but they attached uh, metal weights to the net so that it would drop and it would sink all the way to the bottom. And then they would have to pull the, with that net back in and, and obviously catching any and all the fish that were swimming in that region at the time. And that net would be dragged back in. So... The process of fishing was a a menial, it was physical, it was a monotonous work. We get another not-so-appealing picture of what it was like to be a commercial fisherman in that world by what we read in verse 21. You see, Matthew tells us that James and John, they weren't fishing the same day that Jesus came by. Peter and Andrew were fishing. James and John, though, they were doing another difficult thing. They were mending the nets. They they had the frustrating, labor-intensive job of having to go back through because they would catch limbs and other things, trash that would be in the sea, and it would break those nets and cut them. And so they had the responsibility of bringing those nets in and and mending them and, and cleaning them. So what Matthew describes for us in these passages, don't miss it, is just a typical daily common experience of what it was like to be a commercial fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. And I think that's worth noting because it is into this environment the hardworking, labor-intensive, yes, potentially profitable world of commercial fishing that Jesus walks and issues a stunning command. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I find it interesting that neither Matthew nor nor Mark in the parallel account to here tell us any of the other small talk that might have occurred. We simply read that Jesus first called out to Simon, Peter, and Andrew and told them to follow him. And then we can only assume based upon the last two verses of this text that Jesus said something very similar if not identical to James and to John. A literal translation of what Jesus would have said would be somewhere along the lines of come on here. Get in behind me and I will give you a new purpose in life. I will will make you become fishers of men. Now, I want you to just imagine how crazy such a command might have sounded. And I want you to imagine it by imagining that was you. Just imagine it's just a typical day for you doing whatever it is that you do. At your job, at your place of employment, maybe it's at your home. You're you're fixing something, you're working on something, you're typing something in, you're studying, doing whatever it is that you do. Suddenly a man walks up to you and tells you to drop whatever it is that you're doing. Come along, get in behind him and devote yourself 100% completely to him. How do you think you'd respond? I can imagine just from my own perspective, my first thought would be, well, what am I supposed to do about my responsibilities? What am I supposed to do about paying my bills? (laughs) What about my relationships that I've got here? What you're asking of me seems an awful lot. Can I I ask some follow-up questions to find out what all this is going to entail? Now, to be fair, this conversation is not the first conversation that had happened between Jesus and these disciples. As a matter of fact, you can go back and read John chapter 1. You can go and read Luke chapter 4 and chapter 5, and you can find that these two sets of brothers had encountered Jesus prior to this point. They'd even gotten to know him prior to this point. Nevertheless, I still want you to consider how radical and how extreme such a call to follow Jesus would have been for these men. Effectively, Jesus tells them to drop everything and to walk away from everything that they have ever known and from everything that they have ever been identified with and to accept a new identity and a new role. David Platt explains it this way. He says, Jesus' invitation to those first disciples was a call to leave all things. They left behind everything that was familiar and natural for them. They exchanged comfort for uncertainty. They didn't know where they would be going. They only knew who they would be going with. Listen, if we are honest with ourselves and if we are honest with this text, we have to admit that what occurs here is truly striking. You can't just skip over it without imagining the the, the real underlying theme and the underlying truth that goes along with it. Matthew shows us in the starkest of terms what it means to accept the challenge of discipleship. What it means to accept the challenge to come and follow Jesus. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, Jesus is telling these men, I want priority over your career. I want priority over your family. I want priority over every aspect of your life. I want priority to know me, to to love me, to resemble me, to serve me must become the supreme passion of your life. Everything else has to come second. And then notice how these brothers respond. Matthew tells us in verse 20 that Simon, Peter, and Andrew waited around talked about it, set up a family tribunal, discussed it, voted on it. No. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And then in verse 22, we read that James and John immediately left their boat and their father and followed him. And what we see demonstrated for us is nothing short of radical obedience. I mean, consider the fact that these men may not have been the most socially or, or economically the, the, the most elite of the area. But the fact that they had a boat. And the fact that if you read in Mark's gospel, James and John, their father Zebedee, they had hired servants who were helping them in their fishing endeavors Those those key understandings let us know that they were successful fishermen who had much to lose by following Jesus. And the striking word that Matthew uses to describe what they did was that they left immediately. So thus far what we have seen is that the call to follow Jesus necessitates repentance. Secondly, we have seen that it requires radical obedience. And I want us to come back and consider the ramifications of those thoughts in just a moment. But before we do, notice with me the last point on your outline, and I want you to consider this consider this with me. The call to follow Jesus is extended to even the most despised. The call to follow Jesus is extended to even the most despised. Now, we could go on and talk about how Jesus is calling disciples from the region of Galilee, which we've already noted was a region that was uh, considered sort of the lower echelon of Jewish society, particularly by those in 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 those in the cultural and religious uh, center of Jerusalem. But to drive the point home even further for just a moment, let's break with this text in Matthew 4 and consider what we read there in Matthew 9, verse 9. I'll read it for you again. Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed From the context of Matthew 9, um, Jesus is still ministering in and around the area of Capernaum. Which was obviously a town large enough uh, that the Roman government stationed a tax collector there. and He would set up his booth. He would impose taxes upon all those who lived and and who um, conducted trade in the region. And what we learn is that Matthew was the guy. Matthew was the tax man. Now, in the time of Christ, tax collectors were considered the scum of society. They were the lowest of low. They were absolutely hated. And the reason that they were hated was, was because how one became a tax collector was that they entered into an agreement with the Roman government. And they put a bid out and said, we, we believe that based upon the population of this area, you ought to be able to at least be able to bring in this amount of money. And I'll bid that I'll get you this amount of money to come in from this area. And if the Roman government chose that man, then, then that was how much he was responsible for giving to the Roman government. And everything else that he could collect on top of it was his. And so if he could charge you a dollar, he might just say, well, let's give me a dollar and a half. And if you argued about the extra 50 cents, he said it just became a dollar 75. And if you really want to push me even further, we'll go to two bucks. And that's how he made his money. And you can imagine that extortion became a very big partial because if you couldn't pay your taxes, guess who the man was that had the money that would let you pay your taxes? But he would charge you an exorbitant interest rate to get you into the good graces. So he would just get his claws around you. And as a result, the tax man in that particular time in the world was considered to be the lowest of low. He was considered to be a traitor to his own people. He was considered to be a thief He was considered to be someone who cheated his own countrymen. And Kent Hughes states that the tax collectors were easily the most hated men in Hebrew society. The picture I want you to get is that in that day, a tax collector like Matthew was someone who was hated socially. He was an outcast. He was an exile. He was barred from the courts. He was barred from the temple and the synagogues. He was barred from normal and respectable society. Nevertheless, notice that Jesus reaches out to Matthew and issues the same call to him that he issued to Peter and Andrew and James and John. He says, follow me. Now, I want to ask you a question. Does that strike you? Because it should. In light of the social standing that Matthew had, do you not at least wonder for a moment why Jesus would pick him? Well, what such a choice by Jesus demands that we understand is that the call to follow him is extended to even the most despised. And here's what I want you to see. Such a call is both life-transforming and also life-shattering. It is life transforming because Matthew did just what Peter, Andrew, James, and John did. You notice there's no debate. There's no waiting. The Bible says he arose and followed Jesus. And notice that just as it was with those four fishermen, it's radical obedience that he engaged in. And we know, we know that Jesus' call to follow him was life transforming for Matthew because Matthew left the tax-collecting booth and he ultimately became the one who penned the gospel that I just read for you earlier. It's entitled Matthew for a reason. Not because it's Matthew's gospel, but it's the gospel of Jesus according to Matthew. He was the one that wrote it. And so he ultimately followed Christ and, and gave his life to become one of his disciples. So undoubtedly the call to follow Jesus is life transforming, but it is also life shattering. I'm not even going to go into what he would have left behind, the lucrative money that he would have turned his back on and left. We we will leave that. What I want you to know is it's life shattering because when Jesus called Matthew according to the New King James, he was sitting at the tax office. That may give you the indication he had a building that he went to and everybody had to come by it's not the way it was. it was. A tax booth is a much better um, interpret, interpretation of that, that word there. And, and, and so that booth was portable and he could set it up wherever there was a large amount of people or a lot of traffic or a lot of commerce that would have been going on so that he could levy tolls on the individual that were passing him. And since Capernaum was known for its fishing business, there would have been much travel in and out of that area. So it would have been a prime location for Matthew to have set up his residence. And furthermore, tax collectors were also known to levy taxes upon goods and upon the things that were were brought in and out of a region. And as Alistair Begg has noted, there is evidence that even the fish that were caught and transported back into the surrounding cities were taxed. And therefore... For Matthew to put his tax booth there near the Sea of Galilee would have proved to be a quite lucrative move on his part. But can you imagine how the fishermen of that area would have felt about Matthew? Can you imagine the things that they said to him every time they passed him and had to pay a tax to him? Not only because they traveled through the area, but because of the fish that they had caught. Can you imagine the bitterness and the hatred that would have welled up in their hearts toward this stinking sinner and this stinking traitor? That is why I say to you that the call to follow Jesus is life-shattering. You see, Imagine how Peter, Andrew, James, and John would have felt about Jesus calling Matthew to be a part of their team. And it's quite likely that they would have been among the ones that Matthew had squeezed for money every time they'd passed by. him. it's quite likely that these men had had personal dealings with each other and that these four fishermen turned disciples of Jesus would have had even less use for Matthew than they would have had for any other tax collector because for them it would have been personal. But as we read back in chapter 4 Jesus had called these fishermen brothers to follow him. To not only follow in his footsteps but to have their minds changed and conformed to the mind of Christ. And that's the part that I want to draw out for you. That's That's part of what it means to follow Christ. You see, the call of of Matthew to follow Jesus, to become one of his disciples, would have not only been life transforming for him, but it would have been life shattering for the others. They would have had to come to see this man with the same set of eyes that Jesus saw him. They had to stop looking at him from the way that they had been conditioned and they had to start looking at him from the way that Jesus would have seen him. Brothers and sisters, such a truth is no less life-shattering for you and for me. We who have trusted in Christ and have committed ourselves to following Him must recognize that His grace and His mercy are not extended only to folks that look like us and talk like us and act like us and have the same set of values that we have. Rather, the grace and the mercy of Jesus reaches out to every man and to every woman and to every boy and girl who will repent of their sin and place their faith in Him and come behind Him and follow Him. And I want you to know that should cause us to rejoice. It shouldn't cause us to to, to hate what the gospel is all about. It should cause us to rejoice in what the gospel is all about. Because here's the point. No matter who you are and no matter what you've done and no matter where you've been and no matter how far from the will of God you have transgressed, the Lord Jesus calls you to follow him. He calls you. It doesn't begin by telling you to clean yourself up first. He doesn't tell you to get everything fixed and get it all tidy in a night row before you come and follow Him. No. The call of Christ to you is to abandon everything, turn from your life that you have been living, and come be a follower of Christ. And in the process, He will do for you just what He did for Matthew and for every other person who has turned to follow Him. He will transform your life. And that transformation begins with you recognizing and humbly admitting that you are a sinner. And it starts by owning who you are and falling down before the Lord Jesus in repentance. It means trusting in what Christ has done on the cross to save you from your sins and then turning from those sins, refusing to make excuses, no longer allowing yourself to be controlled by those things, Submitting your life totally and completely to the control of Jesus. And as we've seen, such repentance is demonstrated in your willingness to abandon everything to follow Christ. The the Lord willing, in the coming weeks, we're going to consider in greater detail what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. But it bears being heard now. Jesus says there, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Listen, let me say to you as unequivocally as I can, that is where following Jesus starts. In a world where everything revolves around self, where the thoughts always seem to center around protecting myself and and promoting myself and, and preserving myself and taking care of myself, Jesus says, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. We have observed from our passage this morning, such a denial requires obedience, and obedience necessitates submission. Therefore, to follow Christ means to submit to his authority, to submit to his lordship. How could it mean anything else? Finally, I would point out to you that to follow Christ in the way that we have witnessed from Scripture this morning necessitates that you place your trust in him. You see, it will be absolutely impossible for you to follow Christ without trusting in him, without truly believing he is who he said he is. And your lack of trust in him will cause you to either deviate from the path that he calls you to take or it will cause you to just decide that following him is not worth the cost. Let me say to you today that following Jesus is worth it no matter what the cost is to you. Following Jesus is worth it. Following him is worth it because as our text tells us, back up in those verses that we began with, he is the great light who has come to dispel darkness. He is the life that has come to overcome death. And following him is worth it because nothing that you give up to follow Jesus will ever compare to what he blesses you with because you follow him. Consider the difference following Jesus made in the lives of these disciples. Their horizon had always been bound by the margins of the Sea of Galilee. But when they committed themselves to follow Jesus, everything changed. And in the place of Galilee came the world. In fact, John became the bishop of Ephesus. Peter went on to Rome. Tradition tells us that Andrew went as far as the boundaries of Russia. Matthew ultimately penned his gospel so that the rest of his countrymen could hear about the good news and the ministry and the works of Jesus. Jesus. And Kent Hughes summarizes what happens this way. He says, their hearts were enlarged to take in the whole world. Their minds, once circumscribed and committed to the smallest of interests, now overflowed with deep thoughts. And they became theologians, thinkers, sociologists, psychologists, and strategists, all because of the gospel. Let me repeat what I said earlier. Nothing that you give up to follow Jesus will ever compare to what he blesses you with in return. But let me also say to you that if you choose not to follow Jesus, if you decide that the cost of following him is too high, if you choose to live your life for yourself, refusing to repent and choosing instead to settle for a casual acquaintance with Jesus but never truly following him, then there is a great and eternal cost to be paid. Because the Bible clearly tells us that the wages of sin is death. And death, apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, means that there is an eternity in hell that is your destination. And therefore, on behalf of the gospel, I plead with you, do not be deceived today. The cost of not following Jesus is far greater than the cost of following him. And that is what leads me to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. The call to follow Jesus requires sinners and outcasts like you and me to respond in faith by repenting of our sins and obediently surrendering everything to His Lordship. That is what the call of Jesus demands. The question is, have you done that? Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Have you repented of your sin? Have you abandoned everything else in life in order to follow Jesus? No matter who you are, Jesus calls you to come and follow him, to come be his disciples. The question is, will you heed his call? Will you become a follower of Christ? Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you still come among us, and you still call us out. You call us out to be your followers. You call us out to turn our backs upon everything and to grasp only you. And I pray today, Lord, that you will make that calling very clear in the hearts and the minds of these that are here this morning. Particularly if there's one here who has never turned to you in saving faith and repentance. I pray that you would speak to them as only you can. Allow your Holy Spirit to work in their hearts pray that you might do a work in their life a saving work I pray that you would also bring about repentance in the lives of those of us who have made the decision to follow you in the past and yet we may have allowed things to creep into our lives that we recognize your Holy Spirit's convicting us right now of areas of our lives that we have not surrendered to you we're holding back and we're clutching on to those things Lord I believe you want to do a great work inside those who are your followers So I pray that you would do that work today as well. And that through all of this, that you would exalt yourself and lift you you up in, in our eyes that we might truly have you be our Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.